Welcome back to the Airbnb Nomads podcast. You're with me, Alex, and on this week's Property Education Masterclass, we're joined by the amazing Steve Hearn. Now, Steve is one of the UK's most educated fire risk assessors, and we're gonna be discussing the big topic around the fire risk assessment changes that came in last year around serviced accommodation. You need to know this stuff, so make sure you stick around and listen to the whole episode. There is so much juicy stuff here. I'm really excited. Here we go. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Alex. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having you on. I'm excited for today for a few different reasons. One is I believe that you are, without getting too mushy, one of the most respected and educated fire risk assessors in the business. So I'm really interested and excited to get that knowledge out of your brain and into our listeners' ears because I think it could potentially help to answer a lot of questions and solve a lot of problems with this business. Um, And I'm also excited to kind of lift the lid off of this, all of these changes. There's so much confusion around it. Again, I think this content over the next hour is gonna give so much value to serviced accommodation operators to help not only make them more money, but also more importantly, to protect them from all of the liability that goes along with these changes. And a lot of people don't fully understand what those changes are, and it's all gonna be answered in this podcast over the next hour, so I'm super excited, and I'm so glad that we can find the time to get you on, because I know you're a busy man. Thank you. So, with all that being said, and that massive build up, no pressure. Why don't you start with telling us a little bit about who you are, your background, and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, thanks for that. Great intro. Um, one of just, pay, me, pay me later. <laughs> one of many fire risk assessors out there. Um, I've been in the uh, risk management and um, fire safety business for over twenty years, um, running total risk management as my own company for the last ten. Um, I've specialised in risk management in retail and leisure uh, specifically um, for about 30 years in total, both working in-house for large multi-site retailers and independently with total risk management. So lots and lots of experience in the fire safety world and now um, spend my time both fire risk assessing and training people to upskill themselves on the fire safety within their businesses. So um, yeah, lots of lots and lots of experience, um, and great to be able to try and at least get some of this across to to you and your clients on managing fire safety. Yeah, really, really cool. Something that first comes to mind, um, and that I'm interested just briefly to get your answer on, is how do you in this business? It's so important. Everybody needs to comply with the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. But is it difficult? to sell the stuff that isn't sexy, that people might find a little bit boring or maybe for some reason unnecessary because they never think it's gonna happen to them. So I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that some of the challenges in your business is selling the importance of this stuff because people just wanna cover their ears and pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, always. So yeah, head and sand syndrome uh, is very, very common. Certainly in the serviced accommodation world, because there's not enough spoken about how important fire safety is and just how much regulation and how much um, requirement there is on you to ensure that you comply with fire safety regulations. In the sort of wider corporate world, obviously there's, there's a, a very uh, mature approach to fire safety, 
but even then you find yourself often in a race to the bottom that people want to do as the least they can to put a tick box against compliance basically but of course in the world of fire safety that's a really short-term view what you want to do is ensure that you've got your pillars of fire safety and compliance in place Um, and that's not sexy it's not boardroom agenda stuff it doesn't get you top of the list on uh, youtube but it's very very important so it's a case of being pragmatic being sensible not scaring the bejesus out of everyone because it's fairly straightforward stuff to deal with but yeah, there is a lot of, um, I'll use the term ignorance, just in so much as people are unaware of quite how the law has changed in some areas and really how much onus there is on business operators to ensure they comply. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's not sexy, um, but it's not frightening either. And I think this is one of the topics that we want to try and find that line around today on this podcast, right? I believe, and this is where we want to do things differently, People are selling courses every single day around this business without talking the truth, either through their own lack of knowledge or because it's not sexy or because if it's delivered incorrectly, it might scare some people and stop them from buying the course. We're here today to talk about, yes, there's new guidelines that are enforced. Yes, there's new legislation that we need to follow. Yes, we need to be educated about this stuff. But if we can learn it, And if we're working with the right people who are telling the facts and the truth in a fun, informative way, and you learn it and enforce it, then it can actually work to your advantage because you can become, you can slowly kind of raise up the ladder, right? And you can become one of the few operators that are doing things the right way, not only for you and your business, but most importantly for your clients and keeping them safe. So it's not scary. There's just some things that we need to know by working with the right people. And if we're implementing that into our business, we can actually benefit from these changes while the rest of the stragglers get left behind. So based on all that, Steve, why don't we get into some of the basic things that change? We know that it was recently, October of last year, right? That we had Mm -hmm. some changes. There was also a lot of legal framework in place that again, a lot of operators maybe didn't know was even there in the beginning. So there was just some changes last year to the existing framework, but a lot of people all of a sudden started freaking out and thinking, oh my God, now we've got to comply with all this stuff when actually it was already there in the first place. Yeah. It's just maybe got a little bit more, um, you know, a bit more awareness around it because of the framework that's come out. So why don't we get into the basics of what happened, what changed, what do we need to be aware of? Yeah, definitely. So you've almost answered the question for me. Um, the elephant in the room here is that for serviced accommodation providers, the, there has always been a requirement for you to comply with fire safety regulations um, in a greater or lesser extent. Where the accommodation that you're providing is not as someone's permanent residence, be that they're an owner or they're renting, if it's sold as a short-term let, it's considered commercial and always has been considered commercial. So you will always have had a duty since 2005 to comply with the regulatory reform fire safety order, which I will call the fire order going forward. So there's always been a duty there to comply. Now, post Grenfell, post um, numerous pieces of legislation that have been updated and quite rightly so following Grenfell, um, at the end of October, there's something called the Building Safety Act and specifically section 156 of the Building Safety Act came into play, which made some fundamental changes to the way that the reform order, the fire order is, is being enforced. Most notably, there was a gap in the legislation that 
allowed you, if you had five or less employees, not to make a written record of your risk assessments, not to make a full written record of your fire precautions. So section 156 amended that, and now regardless as to the size of your business, you are required to make a full written risk assessment of your premises for your business, and to make full written details of your fire precautions, to notify other responsible persons if you're in a shared accommodation as to who you are as a responsible person, and to obtain the details sufficiently to trace the fire risk assessor if you've used an external risk assessor to do your assessment. So there's um, a, a demonstrable shift in the evidence that you've got to put into play to ensure that you're complying fully with the reform order. The reform order applies to all commercial premises and has done since 2005, so that hasn't changed. What has changed is the level of detail that you've got to evidence in your fire safety management. So a subtle but important change. What also comes into play and has been more um, transparent is what we call Article 50 guidance. So within the reform order, there are certain pieces of information that the government provides that gives you, if you want, your manual for operating for fire safety in the business that, that you're in. So for serviced accommodation, for small let type accommodation, that's the um, fire safety guide to small paying guest accommodation, that's Article 50 guidance, which sets out really the to-do list for fire safety. The importance of Article 50 is that that is used against you should you have a fire safety failing or an investigation and you haven't put into place the guidance that's been recommended within Article 50 um, documents. So unlike some of the British standards, unlike LARCORs, if you're used to using sort of more residential based um, information, Article 50 has the ability to be used as a tool against you for failing to comply with fire safety. So it's important that you know that it's there, it's important that you follow it, and it's important that you document your risk assessment and fire precautions in sync with that guidance. <clears throat> so um, small but very important and very influencing changes from October that now every single serviced accommodation provider falls under. And I know, Steve, um, through my own experiences, being in the space, being a host, you've been around our portfolio, we've been using Steve to do fire risk assessments on our own properties to make sure that we're meeting the framework and that we're protected and that we're doing things correctly. Um, but I know through being in the business, being in the communities, seeing the conversations that people are having in the training courses and in the communities online, there seems to be a lot of confusion around this. You're in the business, you're educated on this stuff so when you read the, le the legislation in the handbooks that have been released for you it's quite straightforward if i had a penny for every time i've heard someone say well yeah alex i've read it but it's a bit gray right i've heard this word a million times not only from hosts operators trainers but also from other fire risk assessors that have said well yeah you know it's a bit gray it could be this could be that now, the reason why I like you and working with you and the reason why you're part of our business, such a, a major part of our business in keeping our portfolio and ourselves safe and our guests safe, is because the first thing you said was, there's no grey here. It's black and white, right? It's clear what you have to do. So why don't we go over some of the, some of the, some of the key changes? Because I know there's a lot of confusion out there. So there's a lot of operators watching this, listening to this. They've got a portfolio. It's a mixture of flats 
apartments, houses, two floors, three floors, detached semis, terrace, whatever. And everybody's thinking, what the hell do I do? So why don't we run over some of the key changes that hosts really have to be aware of and some of the processes that they can follow to protect themselves? Yeah, sure. Um, first and foremost is it's important to understand what the type of property that you've got is and what specific piece of guidance it falls under. So are you falling under the small property um, paying guest accommodation guidance or do you have to conform to the wider um, sleeping guest accommodation which has slightly more onerous conditions around it? To try and bottom this out, I have um, been speaking to fire and rescue services around the country um, and to... Um, some Get, of the, getting it from the horse's mouth. From the horse's mouth. So, you know, understanding what, from the community in, and um, inspection perspective, what are the fire and rescue services expecting to see? Um, Sorry, Steve, can I just butt in there real quick because it's important. What Steve just said is massively important. Steve is talking to the people who are going to be looking into this stuff, right? Yep. You're gonna be following it up and potentially using it against you if you're not following the framework. So when you're sitting in a classroom, when you're sitting in a, with a course, in a course with, a, with a mentor, whoever that is, and they're giving you this information, you better make damn sure that they are as educated as you, right? When they're giving you that information, which they're not gonna be. That's why you should always seek the advice, I believe, of someone like Steve, who is actually making these phone calls, having these conversations on a daily basis with people who are Enforcing this stuff. Yeah, and that, that's exactly why I took the uh, I took that approach, because of the, um, the 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 rhetoric around it's grey and me saying it yeah. isn't grey. It's black and white. The guidance is quite clear in terms of the minimum expectations of fire precautions you need to put in place, but there is room for that to be interpreted. Now, there's a lot of uh, misconception generally that you know the fire service is the fire service and therefore the law is the law. The reality is different fire and rescue services will enforce slightly differently and that's dependent on their own service um, directives, their own local problem solving approaches. So there may be a fire and rescue service that has a particular issue with service accommodation, may have a particular issue with licensed premises, may have a particular issue with um, uh, retail, um, leisure. So that will get a certain focus. So they may, to their own um, approach, enforce it slightly differently. There may be some local bylaws, there may well be some local council or government, local government approaches to, to how far safety is managed. And you need to sort of understand that a little. So I've been approaching the fire and rescue services around the country to get their opinion on this. And if there's one thing that's come back, the common um, the common approach that I'm seeing is a steadfast application to the written word in both the guidance and the supporting British standards. So if the guidance says you need a fire alarm, they will say you need a fire alarm. And if the guidance says it needs to be to a certain British standard, they will inspect you to that British standard. It's very linear, very black and white. So in essence, the um, what the fire service will be looking for when they come to inspect you um, is very direct, very straightforward. First and foremost, they'll be looking for a fire risk assessment. You cannot even begin to approach fire risk um, fire safety precautions until you've done your risk assessment, until you understand the nature of your premises and the risks that you have in them. Because every single premises is different. Every single premises, regardless as to when it was built, has its own 
issues with fire safety. And unless you do your risk assessment, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to be on a foundation to start to put your precautions in place. And we'll touch on risk assessments in a little bit more detail. Sorry, um, Steve, just, yep. just, to, just to jump in there on that point. I know that, again, people might be listening to this and thinking, well, that's great, Steve, and you know, I understand that, but I can't imagine anyone ever actually coming to visit my property. I'm under the radar. We spoke before we came on to record this podcast, and you said, and you know, through conversations you're having within the inner circle, inspections are, are happening. They are already happening. Yeah. And fire and rescue services are already getting property lists for service accommodation to inspect. So yeah, ignore it at your peril. This, this is coming, um, but again, it's not you know it's not big and scary. There's just some very simple common sense things to look at. Got to take so, action. Uh, yeah. So they will be looking for your fire risk assessment. They will definitely be looking for fire alarm provision. Um, again, we'll touch on the different standards of fire alarm provision in a, in a moment. They will definitely be looking at your means of escape, which brings into the arena the the sticky conversation of fire doors and where you require fire doors and where. Um, existing doors will suffice. They will be looking at your um, emergency lighting, so where you have um, the premises and your fire escape route isn't lit out of hours, so there may not be any natural light coming through. There may, there may be some areas where you need to provide artificial lighting in, in hours of darkness. They'll be looking to ensure that that's in place. They'll certainly be looking at your firefighting equipment, um, so fire extinguishers, fire blankets, um, that's subject to your risk assessment. There's no actual defined requirement for firefighting equipment if it's not for employee use. But if your risk assessment is recommending that fire protection equipment should be there, it will define what you require. They will want to see an emergency plan. They want to know that you've thought through how people will get out of that property in the case of a fire, which sounds pretty straightforward if you're in a two up, two down um, semi-detached house. But you'll be surprised, and we've we've been to properties already where you know, what you take as, as assuming to be a rather straightforward evacuation plan can often be anything but. So they need to see that you've, in, you've, you've taken account of how people will get out if there is a fire. And finally, all of that needs to be put into place and maintained. So you need to make sure that you're maintaining both your physical fire protection, your passive fire protection and active fire protection. So in terms of your fire doors, your fire alarm, and you also need to ensure that it's reviewed. So your risk assessment's reviewed and that your emergency planning is reviewed. So that's what the fire service will be looking for. Um, and obviously we'll, we'll touch on a few of those in a little bit more detail. Absolutely. <clears throat> a couple of things that stand out there. Um, the first thing is, and we touched on this briefly as well before we came on, one of the challenges with serviced accommodation, especially rent to serviced accommodation, right? The hook or the sales approach from a lot of training companies is that it's a very low cost of entry right into the market. So people who are maybe their backs are up against the wall a little bit, they're looking for a silver bullet, they don't have you know six figures to go out and buy a property. So the hook with this business is that they can get in cheap. And a consequence of that is a lot of people will go out, fresh out the training courses, desperate to source that first property. And a lot of the time they'll take on the first thing that's offered to them. And the reason that it's offered to them is because a lot of the time it's in a rundown state, right? It might not meet all of the measures that you've just spoken about and they may need to you know put a little bit of money into the property in order to get it onto the standard residential market so that's why it gets put in front of a lot of people who are fresh out of training courses desperate to take anything they can get so that's something that you need to be aware of if you're getting into the business is making sure that 
the properties that you're looking at taking on, you know, are going to meet all of these changes. And maybe that's something we can touch on a little bit later. The other thing that you spoke about and that, that I was a little bit, you know, maybe naive to was the amount of importance that's placed on making sure that you are doing the regular maintenance um, checkups and logs, right, on the fire systems. I can guarantee it. Hosts are not doing that. They're taking on the properties, put the fire alarms in, get it rented, forget about it. You know, close your eyes, cover your ears, hope that nothing ever goes wrong. But what you said about the importance of stuff has to be documented, has to be logged. And if something, God forbid, does happen, the first thing they're going to say is, we need to see evidence, hard evidence, not evidence that was in the house, but sorry, it went up in the, in the, in the fire, right? Has to be evidence, has to be separate, has to be done regularly. So that was huge. That was a big thing for me. Okay, so fire risk assessments. Do you recommend, uh, Steve, that with the fire risk assessments, um, I think this is quite a hot topic, can people go out and do their own fire risk assessments? One, they take on the property, should it be done maybe before they even sign a contract for a property? Say they're gonna take it on for three years, and then they find out, oh my God, I've got to dump five grand into this place to get it up to up to spec. How should we tackle that problem? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So sort of just, just to touch on that in, your, in your, um, your, your previous statement, yeah, there is, you need to do your due diligence on a property. And obviously that, that's something that you will be reinforcing as part of your uh, business model and part of your, your training in the property world generally, you know, the art of the deal. You've got to consider your um, remediations that you might have to do from a fire safety point of view. You're going to be doing it from a, a, an aesthetic point of view. You're going to be looking at your carpets and your paint and your, your furniture. But of course, part of that is to consider your fire safety as well. So upskilling yourself as a host in, you know, not to a risk assessor's level necessarily, but having an awareness of fire safety precautions generally will put you in a good stead to be able to understand, for instance, and, you know, knowing a fire door when you see one versus a hollow fill door that will be no good, you'll have to have it replaced. Um, understanding if you've got a fire alarm that conforms to the requirements of the guidance rather than the requirements to the Housing Act, because they're different. Um, you know, a new build house will have a fire alarm in, but it won't necessarily be to the standard that you require for service accommodation. So being under, able to understand that and, and to be aware of the cost implication potential with that is important to you right from the get-go. No use taking on that three-year, five-year deal and then realising, yeah, you've got a £10,000 potential cost in front of you. To the point of risk assessments, um, to your answer directly, no, there's nothing to stop anybody risk assessing themselves. The law, um, which is still going around in circles, we're very close professionally to being accredited as, as, as fire risk assessors and there are already fire risk assessor registers out there so you can see where someone's qualifications are they're charging you for their service that's quite right but the way the law is at the moment you you don't have to evidence competence per se so um, you could write your own risk assessment and we see a lot of that in, in the industry generally where people have completed risk assessments but actually when you read them and you dive into them they're they're very light touch and don't comply with the regulations so Yes, you can do the risk assessment yourself, but it's really important that you upskill yourself first by undertaking some form of training or awareness around the fire safety uh, and risk assessment approach. 
And what's even more important is to understand your own inability, your own level of incompetence. So if you take on a property that's just a little bit older, just a little bit more um, diverse in terms of its layout or construction, to understand at that point, that's the time for you to bring in a professional risk assessor um, because it might well be outside of your, your own competence, to use the phrase. Um, for me, that is really straightforward in that if you follow the small premises guide, so a property that falls within the remit of that, less than two, floor, two or less floors, less than 200 square metres of floor, and with no particular open plan essence to, to the design, you may well be comfortable doing the risk assessment yourself, provided you've upskilled. Beyond that, it's the point to bring in a professional risk assessor to cover um, that you know the regulations that you then have to apply, which are in a little bit more detailed. You've you've got the right advice on. So uh, yeah, know your own competence when it comes to risk assessing, or bring someone in to do it. But there is nothing in law to stop you doing it yourself. A couple of things that come to mind on that. You spoke about some of the older buildings. Now, we visited a few of our properties the other day, and most of them are of newer build construction. That was a big uh, plus for you, right? What you were seeing, the newer builds. Now, I think there's quite a romantic idea of taking on listed properties, you know, very idyllic, very picture postcard, right? It's nice, it's romantic, it looks really nice on the platforms, but potentially that could be a disadvantage now that we've got to look into this fire world of risk. It, it can do. So again, it comes down to your due diligence before you take on the lease, because yeah, if you take a listed property and for instance, fire doors aren't up to standard, but they need to behave as a fire door, then you could be looking at a quite extensive cost to have um, a fire door uprated to comply, yet still retain its heritage approach. There are, there are ways around that, but that becomes quite expensive. Um, so you need to be aware of that. And you know, a lot of the older properties will not have fire alarms and you will be potentially restricted from how you can wire in your alarm. So we'll yeah. have to consider what options you have around that. So there are, yeah, uh, yeah, to the point of understanding your own limits on your experience of a fire risk assessment to then decide when to bring someone in externally to help you. Yeah, and again, it, it's, a, it's, a li it's a fine line, right? And it comes back to education and you know learning from this and listening to this and, and and consume this kind of information and understanding it because going back to you know you're starting your business you're just trying to get that first couple of properties under your belt and you're gonna get really excited about a lovely romantic grey two listed cottage with a piece bit of land and a little duck pond in the back and you think my god this is going to make a fortune and it might rent well but you might also at the same time find out that you've got to spend £10,000 to get someone else's property up to spec. So it's something to really be aware of. And going back to Steve's point, do the due diligence on the deal. I'm telling you now, deal analysis spreadsheets are not accounting for remedial works for fire risk. That's 100% guaranteed. So something to, be, uh, something to consider. The other things, uh, Steve, that you said, and I believe there's a misconception, I take on a property, and I think, okay, I want to protect myself. I'm going to call Steve. He's going to come around, do a really in-depth fire risk assessment. When he leaves the property, I've done my job. Steve's come around. He's done his fire risk. I'm now safe from the law, protected. Is that the case? No. Um, what do you mean no? <laughs> so, yeah, of course. If you're bringing in um, 
an external fire risk assessor who has an, a level of competence with them, of course that's going to go some way to evidencing that you have done the right thing to comply with the fire safety requirements. However, within the fire reform order, there's a concept of somebody called a responsible person who is the person that will be pursued for a failure of fire safety compliance in the event of a prosecution. And that will be in the case of a service accommodation provider, you. There may be some element of risk transfer back to the property owner. So the landlord who ultimately owns the premises may have some reliability or responsibility for the you know, the physical makeup of the building, so the roof's blown off or whatever, you know, you're going to have some responsibility back to the landlord. But ultimately, as a business, as a commercial premises, you as the responsible person are what it says on the tin, you are responsible for fire safety. So everything that you then do is trying to evidence your compliance. And the fire risk assessment and appointing an external risk assessor is only part of that. Of course, as the person who's completing the fire risk assessment, I have a legal duty to ensure that I am providing you with the correct and, and relevant um, advice for fire safety. And I, of course, can also be called to court if there is found to be a deficiency in the risk assessment. But the reason they approach the responsible person, um, you know, if you looked at this from a health and safety sort of perspective, it's what it, it approaches the concept of the controlling mind. So who is responsible on a daily basis can affect how fire safety is implemented in that building or in that business. So that will always be you as the host. It's entirely up to you if you provide the fire alarm. It's entirely up to you if you test and maintain the fire alarm. It's entirely up to you if you lock your fire exits or block your fire exits, not up to the fire risk assessor. So the risk assessment is part of it. It's part of the jigsaw. There's of course, um, redress back to the risk assessor if that information provided from them proves to be wanting later on. But you can never remove your responsibility as the responsible person owning that premises or owning that business. Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, and just touching on that, again, we could sit here and speak for hours. There's, there's so much stuff that I wanna know and I know other people are, are, are kind of wanting to, wanting to hear and, and have questions around. When I go out and I, I, I use you, right, because I know Steve's the best in the, in the business, um, but, you know, if, if somebody's watching this, listening to this, and they're up in, you know, wherever, a million miles away, where do they start making sure that the person that they're bringing in is competent? Because, you know, we joke about 99 pound, you know, John, 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 yeah. just, um, fire risk assessors down the road, next door to the pub. How do we know that the person who's coming in knows their stuff? Again, there's, there's, you know, the two approaches to that. One is that there actually at the moment is no minimum base requirement for qualification to be a fire risk assessor. It's a, it's a huge anomaly in the, in, the, in the legislation as it stands at the moment. So you are then looking for evidence or confidence from the fire risk assessor that they obtain or hold the relevant skills, knowledge and experience to undertake it. So there may be that there's a knowledge and experience route to that, that they um, have been doing risk assessments for a sufficiently long time with very good references for the type of work that they've been doing, how they're relating that information to the client and stuff you can get from asking them for, you know, details of previous works they've undertaken. There's of course the academic route to that, so proving that you've undertaken some level of fire risk assessment training, and whether that training is accredited through the likes of the Fire Protection Association, to name but one. 
um, and whether they're a member of a third party verification scheme um, whereby they are independently audited by a third party to ensure that they remain up to speed, um, continue with your professional development and undertake training as the years goes on. Um, so that all comes down to um, your checks and your, your uh, diligence on who you appoint to be the risk assessor. There's lots and lots of guidance, even within the Article 50 guidance for premises, advising you where to go to to look for the relevant experience that you should be asking for your risk assessor. But it's, it is a grey area because there is no base minimum at the moment. It's, it's surely coming down the road very soon. But as it stands at the moment, it's down to you to do your diligence, to, to ask them to evidence to you what the skill, knowledge and experience in undertaking a risk assessment is. Got you. And I, I don't know, I think I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet at the minute about the training world and so many people who don't have the knowledge or education getting into the training space, especially on stuff that for some reason, something as important as this isn't necessarily, you know, you don't need a specific, um, you know, certification to be able to go out and do what you do so I went to and I think a lot of other people when they're going down this road in whatever level of training they're looking at undertaking you've got to do your due diligence on the person right and look at their track record how long they've been doing it like you said what are their current um, you know testimonials their current contracts so without naming any names I like to work with you because I know for sure that you hold some of the largest contracts in the UK with some of the biggest uh, brands in this country and you head up all of their fire risk for yeah. them. So I immediately know Steve didn't just start going get you know a, do a basic training course two weeks ago and now he's out here teaching this stuff. Steve's the real deal and that's what you really you should do in any um, you know whatever you're trying to learn. Make sure you're learning from someone who's in it, doing it, practicing it, teaching it every single day. So you know there's nowhere else that I would go. I think if you're if you're paying for it, yeah that's where you need to prove your competence. Yeah. The fact that the law says you can do a risk assessment without any qualification is one thing, that's one view, and there may be many hosts that are that, that may feel competent through their own experience and training to do a risk assessment, but if you're paying someone to do it, that's where you want your level of due diligence on, you know, are they doing what it says on the tin, or are they 99 pound risk assessments and just doing it from a tick box? Absolutely, okay. So, do you wanna talk about, I know this is, hard because everybody's got a different situation that maybe they're listening to this and hoping to get some some guidance on but should we talk about some of the key specific requirements that have maybe come into the business we can't hit on every single property because there's different requirements for each and that comes down to you to either really educate yourself on this stuff or to speak to someone like to steve uh, and get and get guidance for your own specific set of circumstances but why don't we run through, um, you know, some of the specific things that we need to make sure that we're hitting again in order to protect us, our business, our families, our, 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 our life, sure. but also, you know, our clients that are going to be staying with us, making sure that they come happy and that, that they leave happy and safe. So what are some of the some of the things? Well, that... we'll, we'll start with the one that, that caused most questions to begin with, and that was fire alarms. So there is this... Um, Nine ninety nine from B and Q. Stick it to the ceiling. Job done. Yeah, yeah, domestic fire alarms. So there is a lot of guidance out there for the type of alarm, fire alarm, automatic fire alarm that you could have in a rented premises. So someone's permanent address, albeit rented via a landlord, 
was to a lower extent than you're now required to um, to evidence in a commercial premises. So within um, the small paying guest accommodation guide, it's very, very clear. You must have an LD1 level fire alarm and that must be mains powered with a remote battery backup tamper proof. That's LD1, okay? So the standard is very clear on that. You must ensure that the level of cover of the detection is beyond just the staircases and entrance halls, which is where you used to be with domestic alarms and is pretty much where you are with uh, new build houses with a fire alarm that's installed from the get-go. Mm. So you need any room that's off your fire exit. So in most sort of upstairs, downstairs houses, that will be every bedroom and every room on the ground floor that leads into your staircase or exit hall must be on the fire alarm. Any room of high risk, so if your kitchen is off the off the, the main uh, exit route, might, might be um, sort of to the rear to the house in a, in a, in a galley type sort of kitchen, um, that must be on the fire alarm system. It must be a heat detector rather than a smoke detector. Um, and if you have any rooms of a specific fire um, risk, so you might have a boiler room in, a, in an out, in a, a, you know, like a utility room, mm -hmm. that will need to be covered as well. So it greatly increases the level of detection that you require um, as a base minimum standard. And the fire service will be auditing to that. So that's one of the questions that I've been sort of ringing around the country with is to, you know, how flexible or indeed inflexible is that standard? And without exception, they've come back and said, the starting block is LD1. It's a British Standard 5839 Part 6, which you'll never have to quote again, but um, you know there is a defined standard and that's what the fire service will be auditing to. Um, the, there is no uh, grey area for the fire service on what they'll be expecting to see. Where you have sleeping guests who are asleep and unaware of the premises, it greatly increases the amount of time that they'll need to react to that fire and therefore increases the level of detection. All of those fire alarms or those fire detectors must be interlinked. So one activating in the kitchen will wake everyone in the bedrooms and vice versa. And you must consider the requirement for the less able. So if you have people who are hearing impaired, do you have a provision on those times where you have a guest that is hard of hearing to ensure that they can be aware of when the fire alarm's activating? So whether that's through vibration or light strobes or whatever. So the standard is very, very clear and it's not subject to change unless your risk assessment can give effect to a change. So we touched on it earlier that there may be properties where they're listed and you can't run wires through. It's just going to be so cost inhibitive to a certain extent or indeed not allowed because of the status of the building. So in that context, you may get away with using um, an F1 alarm. Uh, an F1 alarm is basically a 10-year sealed battery detector that is autonomous. It just clips to the base plate on, your, on the ceiling and is radio interlinked to all the other detectors, but it's not independently backed up by a power system. So the guidance does give areas where that could be used um, and does give a threshold for the, the length of time that the fire service may be um, willing to accept an F1 system over an LD1 system. However, it's all subject to risk assessment. So basically, if you do anything that deviates from the very clear instruction to have an LD1 system in your premises, 
you need to evidence that via a risk assessment and through compensatory measures for your other fire precautions. So, you know, increased fire doors, increased um, or decreased um, evacuation routes, etc. So there are ways around it, but as a fire alarm, it's very black and white. You've got to have it and there is a minimum standard which the fire service will be expecting you to display. Okay. <clears throat> Again, banging the drum on this, but when you get offered that beautiful grey two listed idyllic little cottage, consider this stuff. Not saying that it can't work, not saying that you shouldn't take it on, but think about this before you start getting overexcited and wrapped up in how well this thing's going to rent. This stuff needs to come first before you're doing, you know, in your due diligence process before signing on that dotted line and committing, because it may cost a lot of money yeah, to get it up. There's, there's always a workaround, yeah. you know, and very much that's where you're you're getting your value from your fire risk assessor. Um, but be aware that you know these these things can become costly. Certainly, when you've got to make some some pretty um, diverse changes to the property in order for it to comply. So yeah, your homework again is really important. Okay. So, to, and um, you know, moving on to the next thing, we've got to think about how we're going to get out of the property. And something which I didn't really give enough thought to until we started talking about it, and it makes complete sense. Some of the, these people have never stayed in this property before. Right, some of them. If you've got family relocations, you might have grandma, you know, or granddad, you know, older people, less mobile people, or even if they're just contractors or young people, they have never lived in this property. They don't know it. They don't know the exits, where to go. So of course, it makes complete sense. This stuff has to be prioritised. So we need to know how we're going to get out of property. Yeah, you need to know how to get out of property, and you need to know that that route out is safe and protected. So. Again, the guidance is very clear that you must have a defined escape route. Um, that could be the school of the blindingly obvious in most modern build houses. It's your staircase and your entrance hall. But it's also important to ensure that that route is protected so it can't be compromised by fire. So what, we're off, what we often see is that you know, down into the hall from the bottom of the staircase, there's a kitchen. Um, if it's an open plan kitchen, then you need a, a specific fire risk assessment to look at what uh, improvements we may need to, to make to ensure that that exit route is still available. If it's a, a kitchen that's closed off, then we need to make sure that the door to it is a fire door, a 30 minute fire door. Every room that's on the fire exit route, so bedrooms, living room, kitchen, must be a fire door. What is a fire door? What is a fire door? <laughs> That's the $64,000 question. Yeah. So where you need the fire door is, is really quite clear. And in the guidance, there's some very, very good and straightforward floor plans showing you where, where um, fire doors are recommended. However, would you know a fire door when you saw one? You know, Not until you taught me. No. So when, uh, when we were doing the risk assessment or we looked at the fire doors, um, in, a, in your, one of your newer properties, it was very easy to identify because we could see the door, the Trada. So Trada is, a, is an industry association for woodworking on fire doors. Um, and the, the, fire, the Trada label identified clearly the fire door, what type of fire door it was and what the fire resistance was. So in your case, it was 30 minute fire doors with smoke seals. So that was quite quick and quite easy to confirm where you did have a fire door. What it also confirmed was where fire doors that ought to be fire doors had been changed. So in, mm. in one case, um, a sliding door had been put on instead of the proper fire door that was there originally. So we're now having to look at reinstating the fire door to ensure that the, that the kitchen was is protected on the fire route. 
And this so, is, and this is a real world example. Yeah. This is an almost brand new house, and we were laughing because we'd found that they'd actually removed the handle from the outside of the door, the sl sliding door, so that so it could close, which which is an absolute no no. Yeah. So it, it just could never perform as a fire door. Um, that said. Not every fire door is a fire door. So there, there's a concept of something called a notional or a nominal fire door. And that's where we can look at something where, with the experience of the risk assessor or the experience of the property owner or, or, or manager, that you can see where a hardwood door would perform to some extent as a fire door. So what we're looking for there typically is if it's a 44 millimeter thick door, solid wood or solid core filled door um, in a frame that's fit for purpose, um, you could accept that as a nominal fire door. So we're not necessarily having to change every door in every premises because we're looking for fire doors. However, there are also some absolute no-nos, so hollow fill doors, so the really lightweight ones, which again we've, we've looked at, you know, you can literally push them open mm. with your little finger. You, you can feel there's no weight to that door. That will never be accepted as a fire door. So if you have an escape route, and there's a door onto it, it must be a fire door. Does it need to be a certified fire door? Not necessarily, but that must be the subject of your risk assessment to prove or disprove where you do and where you don't need. And again, in one of your other premises, we saw a mixture of, of the two. Um, and again, it was just quite eye-opening to you. I felt that yeah. when I was showing you where the fire doors were and where, more importantly, where the fire doors weren't, um, and therefore some of the remedi remediations that we needed to Absolutely. put in place. And one of the reasons that that property does have a few issues that we're now taking care of, something else to consider is that the, the landlord of that particular property, fantastic property, great location, big, you know, does great, rents all the time, but it had been modified by the current landlord who's a builder um, and a lot of the work just, you know, it might look good, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not, it's not the best of, you know, it's not the best work. So yeah. something else to be aware of when you're looking at properties that have been modified, make sure that it's done, been done to a high standard. And if it hasn't done and you're taking it on, you might have to, you know, make those changes yourself. It's, yeah, does it pass the scratch test? So when you scratch the surface and look behind what's actually there, often you'll find it's not quite as it appears. So, you know, boiler rooms where the pipes are going straight through the ceiling, not being not being sealed after it's been opened up to put the pipe work through and stuff. You know, the, these are the sort of things you'll find if you look for them, but so many people don't look for them. Yeah. Um, and again, you'll never find that sort of stuff. You'll never be able to identify those risks if you're doing your risk assessment purely from a checklist walking around staring at the clipboard, not walking around looking at the property. And what, what was your, another reason why I like working with Steve? Walk, walk it three times? Three times. So if I go back more years than I care to mention, so the first fire uh, risk assessment course I did was with the Fire Service Training College. And um, the, uh, the gnarly instructor there who had a bad temper for just about everything in the world um, said, uh, you know, you walk the premises three times. So, you need to walk the premises to get the orientation, to understand the premises, to get the feel for the premises. Then you walk the, you know, and that's normally with the host. So if it's a commercial premises, someone's showing you around, you're getting used to it. The second time you walk around, you're actually getting your notepad out, identifying some of those issues that you might have noted earlier, being aware. Nowadays, we'll be looking above the ceiling, looking at fire compartmentation into fire compartment walls and stuff. And not until the third time that you walk the premises, do you get 
your note, your uh, your checklist, or your there's a, there's you know past seventy nine is the guidance or was the guidance for for documenting a fire risk assessment. Not until the third tour do you actually start to commit pen to paper, because if you walk around with the checklist first off, you'll only look for what's on the checklist. Yeah. If you do your three your three walk, it, it sticks with me to this day because it's such an obvious way to do it. Yeah, you know, look, look, and then look again. And just another example of why. Again, just my personal opinion, this kind of stuff is so important. I would always only ever have you do it because that's just another thing that you would do that maybe I wouldn't. I maybe I probably would, as a novice, walk around with the checklist, right, and miss half the things yep. that are so most, important. Most people would, and there's always a conversation in uh, fire safety forums and training sessions where, you know, is it not the case that the government provides checklist compliance for you to evidence your fire safety? And if that wasn't the way to do it, why would they issue it? It was like, yeah, but you know, again, what you're what you're taught when you've done any sort of level of professional risk assessment is, you know, you're actually long texting, evidencing what you've seen and how you've seen it, rather than just putting a simple cross or a tick in the box. So yeah, there's a definite process as a professional competent risk assessor, definitely. And what's crazy when you think about it, and I know we've spoken about this. Any host, especially when they're fresh out of the training courses, right, they will not think twice about dropping 500 quid on a second-hand pool table off Marketplace to put into the lounge because it looks nice on the pictures. But when it comes to getting a professional fire risk assessment done, put that to the back of the queue. And I think it's a mix of it's not going to help me rent this property. It's kind of back office admin stuff, so they tell themselves. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, what was the other thing I was thinking? It was, it's it's just, it's not, it's not helping to make their money and they don't ever think that it's going to happen to them. I think is, is the biggest thing. They just, they just think, you know, that's the kind of stuff we see on the TV. That's the kind of stuff we read about. It's not going to happen in my, in my property. Yeah. I think, think, you know, if you you take it, you know, to the slightly wider business concept and when, when, uh, we were sitting down with Pooh and discussing some of the fire stuff generally, you know, you touch on the legal, financial and moral approach to, to risk generally. So, yeah, of course, there is a legal um, and a financial approach to this. You know, legally, you've got to do some stuff. Financially, is it financially viable to do as part of your business model um, to take on a property that you, you have a lot of remediation work to do? But morally, what's the right thing to do? You know, you've got people coming into your houses, they're going to be sleeping in your houses and they need to leave the next day or the next week as fit and healthy as they arrived, right? And if we do anything that that, that affects their health, their welfare, then we're not, we're not living up to our, our moral, financial, yeah. uh, legal standards. I always use the, the benchmark with my daughters, you know, is it somewhere I would be happy for my daughter to stay? And if the answer is no, why would I be happy for anyone else to stay there? Absolutely. You know, so yeah, spend your 300, 500 pounds on your, on your pool table, but not at the expense of doing the right thing for your compliance with fire safety. Yeah. You've got to work into your figures, guys. Steve, I'm aware that we are, this is such a broad subject. <laughs> I knew this would happen. We'd, we'd get sidetracked and start going off piece. So let's, let's rattle through um, last of some of the, uh, the, the changes. So like I said, people are going to be staying in your property. They've never stayed there before. A lot of this stuff's going to happen potentially at night, yep. right? How they're going to get out of the property when they don't when they've never been there before? So we've got to look at lighting. You have, and again, the guidance is very clear in that you need emergency escape lighting if there's not enough borrowed lighting. So, what does that mean? Well, once upon a time, 
if you had street lights outside your house or there was a, an adjacent street building. There you go. So, you know, there may once upon a time have been a reasonable amount of borrowed light, as we call it. So coming through your windows, that's obviously not going to happen if you've got your curtains closed. But um, yeah, more recently, because of the financial uh, toils that most governments and local councils are in, street lights turn off at one o'clock in the morning. So you're into pitch black. So borrowed lighting isn't necessarily as, as available as it always used to be. Nonetheless, you've got a guarantee that your emergency routes are clear and available. So depending again on the type of bit premises that you're in, that may require you having full installed emergency lighting. If you're of a premises that, that is big enough and has enough fire issues around it to warrant full emergency lighting, or you may just require some emergency lights that are either, you know, plug-in torches, plug-in emergency lights on the sockets that will energise immediately on power failure, so that there's a guaranteed way of ensuring you can find your way out um, in the fire. That should also be reinforced via your emergency plans as well, so that your, your clients know where they've got to go when the fire alarm goes off and how quickly they should respond to that. So emergency lighting has to be considered, but there are workarounds on what you need. And again, dependent to the requirements of your fire risk assessment, you should be able to clearly define where and what type of fire um, emergency lighting you need. Okay. And just something that comes to mind, and again, without going too off-piece because of the time, but there's something within this world, bigger the better, right? It looks sexier on social media with the, you know, the big bunch of keys saying that they've just taken on a 10, 12-bedroom house that they're going to do as a uh, whole house essay. Yes, that might be good. Yes, it could be uh, potentially work quite well for your bigger, longer bookings. Um, but this is the kind of stuff that we need to think about. The bigger the property, right, the more complex this kind of stuff gets. Yeah, we've had that. As soon as you go to four or more bedrooms or 10 or more people, potentially you're then into the accommodation guide for fire safety. And that's when you start to trip into full installed yeah. systems, um, you know, fully installed fire alarms to a high, to a different standard, which requires more maintenance than your domestic level of, of um, protection. So, yeah, I, understanding and identifying which particular piece of guidance you need to follow and therefore what the cost implication potentially could be to that is quite important because yeah. yeah you take on a big property there's there's potentially quite a big bill at the end of it a much bigger can of worms so something else to but in, you know in your world not in my world that's very much part of your uh, you know your deal analysis on, on whether that would work or absolutely not. and again banging the drum on this but nobody's talking about it in the training courses nobody's looking it's not in any deal analysis uh, spreadsheet you know we do we do teach uh, and make sure that our mentees are working working this stuff into the numbers, but a lot of people aren't doing it. So just make sure wherever you're working with, your, um, you're doing that. Um, so we've got emergency plans as well, making sure that that's really well documented. We've got to make sure they're available. Yeah, uh, so you definitely, it, it sounds, uh, how difficult is it to get out of a, you know, a, a three bedroom house? It matters not, you've got a legal duty to record what your emergency plan is. So what happens when the fire alarm goes off? Where do you go? Who calls the fire service? What number do you call the fire service on? I've, I've lost count over the years, the number of incidents that I've um, sort of investigated or, or been reported on where people did not know the, the correct emergency number to call. You know, you're going to have tourists for sure. Absolutely. You know, do they know that 999 is the number or yeah. 112 is the number? How many of our contractors are from overseas now? There you go. Um, and to that point, you know, you can have your emergency plans, but if you have a particular 
uh, demographic that are staying for a longer period in some of your properties, then do you consider having those emergency plans in different languages? That's um, a really good point. You know, because not every English isn't necessarily everyone's first language that may well be one of your clients. So, um, yeah, the emergency plans should be a fairly straightforward process. It should absolutely be something that's written into your terms and conditions so that people understand and acknowledge what the fire safety plan is for that building. Um, and yeah, consider who your audience is for that plan. So can it be just a simple sign on the door that says, even if you hear the bell run like hell, or does it need something a little bit more developed? So it's probably the latter, but again, that's dependent on the type of property that you've got and the risks that you've got associated with it will drive necessarily a slightly more developed emergency plan. And of course, you've got to consider the less able. So do you have less able people staying and what are the plans for them getting out? So. For instance, if you did have a wheelchair user, what is the plan for someone getting out in a wheelchair? Um, that covers a slightly wider point on your accommodation provision generally as to what, what you're advertising and do you actually draw a distinction as to who can and can't use that property um, and where those risks are for some of those people. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an interesting topic because how do you, you know, if you get the offer of a booking that's potentially you know, gonna net you a nice amount of income, and there's a wheelchair user, if it's a family relocation, for example, it's very hard to say no to that because you want to follow this. So it's about basically making sure that you're as protected as possible. You've got as much safety precautions in place with this stuff so that you can service as big a, as big a sector as possible. Yeah, and it, and it comes down to, yeah, in those situations, you may well then decide to do something a little bit more bespoke for that particular booking, which mm. may include doing a, an emergency plan for that particular guest that um, otherwise you wouldn't necessarily have in place for that, that property. You know, a lot of properties should be uh, disability accessed anyway, um, just, to, just because that's what we should be aspiring to. We we're going to offer it as a... Um, available to rent premises, but that's not necessarily always the case. So again, understanding and acknowledging the distinction between a premises that can be used quite readily for the less able and those that, that require a little bit more thought. And do you make that clear on your booking terms and conditions on, on some of your platforms? It's a really, really good point. And I'm not ever going to sit here and pretend that, you know, I'm perfect. I know it all. Absolutely not going to do that. And, and again, real life uh, situations, real life stuff. We have properties that are very suitable for, you know, mobility users, but we haven't considered the additional fire risk assessments, records, terms and conditions. We haven't, you know, and that's why we work with Steve, because now we will. So thanks for bringing that, bringing that point up. Really important. So maintenance, uh, again, a huge part. And I'm going to look at you and ask you, are you going around and doing regular, and we'll touch on what that means, inspections of your fire systems? I doubt it. Yeah, rarely, very rarely. So when it comes to maintenance of your fire precautions, it kind of covers two distinct areas. One is the actual maintenance, as you would consider it, so testing and inspecting things. And the other is the maintenance of your procedures. So your fire risk assessment, does it remain in date? Does it remain current? Are your emergency plans and procedures in date? Are your terms and conditions in date and relevant? So when it comes to maintenance of the systems, again, within the guidance, it's very clear, explicitly clear what the fire service will be looking for in terms of evidence of maintenance of your fire alarm, emergency lighting and evacuation procedures. Uh, it gives very clear guidance as to the frequency of those tests that should be conducted. Some of them are weekly, so consider that. If you have longer term bookings, 
how will you give effect to some of those checks that are required to be done weekly on your fire alarms, for example, dependent on the type of alarm you've got. Um, monthly checks, which will be slightly more in depth for some of your testing. And indeed there's a requirement to do testing in between bookings. So it's quite clear. And again, from those conversations with the fire officers that I've been having when I've been sort of arguing, you know, for a, a switch over to F1 fire alarms, and you know, yeah, where is the condition at which we could get away with an F1 instead of an L1 alarm? Um, really reinforced the requirement to evidence maintenance. So, you know, if you're going to have a battery only alarm, you better make sure that you're testing it weekly and evidencing that it's been test weekly, and you can guarantee a less than 48 hour response to changing over a detector if it's starting to get a battery fail on it. So maintenance um, is absolutely requirement, uh, is an absolute requirement, as is the need to record that maintenance. So if it isn't in the book, it hasn't happened, you need to ensure that you've got a system of maintaining those records for those inspections and ensure, you know, when would that ever be required? It would be required if you had a fire, and if you had a fire, would you have lost your record? So do you digitise your logbooks? Do you digitise your fire precautions? And what does that look like? But again, within the guidance, the statutory requirement for maintenance and records of maintenance is really clear, and I cannot enforce enough that the fire service are enforcing to me that that is a standard that they will be looking for when they come inspecting. Okay. I think for some reason, I don't know why, but people specifically in this business seem to say or think a lot of this stuff doesn't apply to them because maybe they've only got one property, right? Or maybe they've only got two properties and this kind of stuff only applies to the big boys who have got 30, 40, 50 properties and they've got systems and they've got teams and they've got procedures. But it's important to understand that whether you've got one or a hundred properties, as soon as a guest comes into your house or a, or, a, or a house that you're renting or that you're legally in charge and control of and they're handing you money for that property, one property that you have, this stuff applies. Yeah, the, and the law doesn't distinguish. Uh, there was one particular fire service in particular that um, I was speaking to and I was saying, you know, is there, is there not a financial argument for putting in battery powered alarms versus hardwired? that you know that may be the difference between them actually getting put in and, and giving lip service to it. Um, and it was the, the rebuttal of cost is not an influencer on whether you comply with fire safety, one property or a hundred. You know, so that, that, that's, that's how you're gonna be viewed when they, when they come a calling because you're a commercial premises. And if you're a commercial premises, a commercial business, then you must have the financial um, strength to ensure that you've done the right thing when it comes to your fire safety which again pushes it back to ensuring that that risk assessment is making the right relevant um, recommendations. Because you know, the other side of the coin is you can have a fire risk assessor that will just say yes to everything, saying, you know, and, and create a huge bill for you that might not necessarily be the case. So ensuring that you're comfortable and confident with the advice that you're given and it fits the, the business plan that you're looking for. But the fire service will definitely be looking for compliance with your maintenance and record keeping. We're going to have to start getting to the end of this. We've barely scratched the surface. There's so much to cover. There's so much knowledge in you that, that we want to try and get out and give to our audience, but we're kind of limited here time-wise. But a point that I really want to emphasize here, some people might be listening to this, watching this, either thinking of getting into the space or they've just started or they've just started their journey, their trainings, wherever it might be. And they might be scared to death thinking, this is just too much for me. I'm going to forget about this and I'm going to go somewhere else. I really want to emphasize the point 
This stuff does not mean that serviced accommodation does not work, it's too costly, the strategy isn't, you know, the, the doesn't work anymore, it's too dangerous, too risky, whatever. It's not that. What we want to what we're trying to drill home here and emphasize is that as long as you're aware of this stuff, you're not ignoring it, you're educating yourself on it, you're working with people like Steve, surrounding yourself with the people who can make sure that you're doing things right that you're protected, that your guests are protected, and most importantly, that this, that any costs that are connected to this new world that we have to consider are considered before you take on the property and you know what you're looking for and you're educated on it, then it's, it's not a problem, right? But what people are doing, training schools, training providers, mentors, coaches, they're not talking about it because they believe that it's going to scare people off of spending money with them, right? And we are looking at it the opposite way. We're talking about it, we're learning it, we're teaching it, we're working with professional people and making sure that people who work with us are doing things the right way and then actually, like I said at the beginning, the opposite. They're benefiting, if anything, because a lot of people are going to drop off who aren't educated on this stuff, who are scared about the, the potential risks involved if you're not doing things right. And that's going to leave more demand for the rest of us who are doing things the correct way. So on that note, what can people do who are sitting at home right now thinking, my God, I've got 20 units. I'm doing thousands of pounds a month in rent roll, tens of thousands of pounds. It looks like everything's going to go pop. What the hell am I going to do, Steve? Yeah, um, I'm going to go full circle right back to the beginning that this has always been in place. Okay. Um, your, your requirement to provide a safe premises as a commercial let um, business, as a holiday let business, a service accommodation business, has always been there. It's just the level of evidence that's changed, okay? So it's important that you understand that. So there's one sort of action that I would really encourage people to look at from today, it's to upskill yourselves. So the more knowledgeable you are about the process, the more comfortable and confident you'll be in it, because it isn't big and scary, it can sound big and scary, but it's actually straightforward. The guidance is straightforward, the advice in it is straightforward, but you need to understand your part in that. So yeah, the, the, to undertake some level of fire awareness training beyond what we've been able to touch today can only be a good thing. To undertake some level of fire risk assessment awareness training can only be a good thing. Um, to both upskill you in terms of what the law requires, and as I reinforced earlier, to make the, you know, to draw the distinction between what you can do and importantly what you can't do, to understand your own level of incompetence and at what point you then may want to bring someone in to support you. Um, you know, a safe premises is a proper profitable premises, right? So if you've just done the right things legally, morally, and financially, you'll be fine. There's, there's, there's no hidden corridors here, it is black and white. Um, so being able to you know, manage your fire safety compliance is fairly straightforward. What I would also reinforce, absolutely do not ignore it because the fire service are um, auditing this now. Uh, the, you know, one particular fire service, very, very close to where we are today, has already got a list of premises they're being asked to look at. Wow. Um, the conversation I had with that enforcement officer was that they were themselves questioning how they would audit these properties, 
which gives you some sort of indication as to just how new this is from a fire service point of view. And so getting ahead of the game, setting the standard, being a pace setter rather than a follower will definitely be a good thing in, the, in, this, in this world. Amazing. So again, just comes down to taking action. Yeah, don't sit on it. Yeah. So some of the things that we can do right now in order to protect ourselves while we're starting to implement some of the other things that we've talk, talked about, booking in to work with people like you to start taking on your fire risk assessments, making the necessary mod modifications that you might have, to, might have to do. One of the things that comes to mind um, is your T's and C's, right, in your property, on your booking pages, on the platforms, your direct bookings through the, through the OTAs, however they're coming, are absolutely watertight, right? Yeah. So why don't we just, um, again, just kind of wrapping things up here, some of the immediate actions that people can take that I can guarantee probably 95% of people watching and listening to this won't have thought about. Some of the policies of what people can and can't do in your premises, above and beyond no smoking, no parties, right? The obvious things that you get told you've got to make sure are in your policies. I, don't, I didn't realize until I started working with Steve if something happens in your serviced accommodation property and the result of that fire has been determined to be something which you have not informed your guests they absolutely must not do. You're going to be on the hook anyway. Yeah. So what this comes back to, uh, which we spoke about in previous conversations, is defensibility. So if the, if the unthinkable happens and you have a fire and you are investigated, You've got to be able to evidence how you've managed your fire precautions and you've got to evidence how you were going to safely manage that premises. So hot topic, quite literally, electric heaters. So if you have a premises that you've got your heating on, everything's working well, and one of your guests says, I'm a bit chilly tonight, so I've got a heater in the works van. I'm going to bring it in. It's one that we have on site all day long. It's kicked around, covered in dust and paint put it into the bedroom, um, it's unsafe, it causes a fire, whose fault is that? You know, so it's always gonna be your fault. It's always gonna come back to the responsible person and then you start to run your defense as to why that shouldn't have happened and being able to clearly evidence in your T's and C's that there is never a case where your client should have brought in that heater. It might be, um, you know, electric products, so, Lithium-ion batteries are just in the news everywhere now for the enhanced fire risk that they have. So do you have a bar on e-scooters, e-bikes being charged out of hours unattended? Um, is that written into your T's and C's? Can you put a contractual link back to your client for not following that, that can at least to some way divert the, um, the risk to you and your insurers? Um, who knows? But it it's important that you've at least got that evidence chain in place. So you've got to start to think about that. You know, you've got a longer term let, do they bring their chip fryer into the mm. kitchen because they like pakoras? Do they bring their air fryer in because they like pizza? You know, all these things that come in that completely run a, a train and coaches through your fire precautions because none of that's pat tested, none of it's electrically tested for the draw that it puts onto your system, etc. So having that in your T's and C's can only be a good thing to try and control um, the external hazards that can be brought into the premises without your knowledge. The reality of it is you'll never be able to stop it, but at least you can go to some way to divert the claim. To protect to di yourself. Divert the, the I'm sharing, I, I, had it, I had it right here. You knew you shouldn't have done it. 
So a couple of things that come to mind, we're all after the longer term bookings, we're all celebrating when we get the six month, 12 month bookings, I've currently got one, it's great, you get that peace of mind financially, but like what Steve was saying, when they're there for three months, six months, one year, they start to want to turn it into their home. So the air fryers come in, all the charging packs off the job site come in, overloading all the sockets yeah. with, the, with the tall batteries. Um, you know, the e-scooters, like Steve was saying, the electric heaters. I sent Steve a picture two days ago. Our cleaners went round to one of our properties and exactly what Steve's talking about, they'd taken the old dusty paint-covered electric heater out of the van, plugged it in uh, into the bedrooms, absolutely no reason. The heating's there, they don't need it, but it's free electric, right? Because they're in a, they're in a, a service accommodation house, so let's uh, turn it into a furnace. Immediate fire risk, if something was to go wrong, if that wasn't in my terms and conditions, again, I'm on the hook. And something else um, that I want to mention, which kind of blew my mind, maybe some of you know about this, I didn't. When Steve comes, and this is the difference why I like working with Steve, 99% of people, 99.9% .9 of fire risk assessors, I believe, wouldn't have picked up on this. He came to look at one of our properties and looked in the laundry cupboard, the linen cupboard, and saw the stack of linen, and said, you can't have that there. And I said, what do you mean we can't have that there? And he informed me about the fire risk that static electric is with commercial grade linen that's been washed and dried, folded tightly, packed, and then stacked in your property is a massive fire risk. Can, can be. Um, the reason we were picking up it on there is because it was underneath your only escape staircase from the first floor. Right. So, kind of like, you know, there is a theoretical at least fire risk associated with laundered uh, linen um, and because you, you, I have no knowledge as to what the static discharge protocols are at the, at the laundry themselves, but there is a, a very um, documented and, and uh, evidenced fire risk with laundered products that are tightly stacked and then put into an area where the static discharge can't dissipate. Um, that point was about your staircase and the staircase not being fire rated, so there shouldn't be a fire load under there at all. But again, you know, that's you wouldn't see that. That issue wouldn't be on your checklist if you were just running from a checklist. So the skill of your fire risk assessor to understand and to be able to impart where those risks have existed in other premises <coughs> and to sort of identify whether that potentially could be a hazard for you. But um, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's why you have a fire risk assessor. Amazing. So as we start wrapping things up, I just want to touch on um, another reason why we work with Steve. Not only does he do our fire risk assessments across our portfolio and help keep our business and our families and our clients safe, but everything that Steve does for us, all of our fire risk assessments, all of our floor plans, everything is digitally logged by Steve within his software that he's created that makes sure that if, God forbid, there ever was a problem, that stuff is documented, evidenced, and held on file by Steve electronically on his platform, and that's why we only work with Steve. So do you wanna just jump real quick into what it is and how it is that you operate and how you make sure that people are, people are operating their business correctly and protected? Well, this, this was never gonna be a sales pitch, but thanks for that, Alex. Um, yeah, we were gonna to touch on digitizing logbooks anyway, because um, you know that, that's very much part of the evidence trail for proving safety. So, you know, TRM, we have a system called e-logs, electronic logs. And does what it says on the tin. So we're archiving tests, um, you know, so the, the, the host testing, QR code driven to be able to log your, your, your weekly, monthly fire text, fire door checks, emergency lighting checks. And there's also a document um, 
performer within there where you can upload certificates, so your electrical inserts, uh, electrical installation certificate, gas inspection, water and heating inspection, etc. Um, and it will nag you to remind you when those documents. Uh, so it prompts you to make sure yeah, you're keeping on up yeah. to the maintenance. Um, we can digitise floor plans into there, so you've got the evidence as to what was risk assessed, and of course your risk assessments go into there as well. So uh, yeah, that, that's one of just of many electronic logbooks that are out there, but and, you know that comes with the service for using um, TRM as your fire risk assessor, or indeed can be used independently um, for whatever need you require. So the way I see it basically is, and again, this isn't a sales pitch. I'm not asking you to get you know call Steve and, and start working with him. Our business. What we've decided to do, Steve comes in, does the fire risk assessment, tells us what to do, we implement that, and then every single bit of maintenance and uh, recording from that minute on is done electronically by Steve. All of his systems prompt us to make sure that we're keeping up with all of the maintenance tasks that we legally need to, and it's complete peace of mind for us, and it's one thing that we can just put to the side and say we know that we are now safe and protected, our clients are safe, our business is safe, because Steve's just handling it all in-house. So for me, it's a no-brainer. Thanks for that, Alex. Well, it's not, it's just, it's just the truth. You know, I'm not, there's, I'm not bullshitting or, or, you know, blowing smoke here. It, it, this is it. This is a big topic that could potentially scare or put a lot of people off, but just bring in the people. This is exactly what big business owners do, right? This is Richard, Richard Branson's whole philosophy. He doesn't know 99% of what his business does. He surrounds himself by the people who specialize in that field. And he's just the orchestra, uh, not the orchestra, the conductor in the middle, conducting the orchestra and, and surrounding himself by his power team. And Steve is our fire risk power team professional um, that just makes all this just go away. It, it does. But again, just to sort of close off really for all those hosts out there, there's nothing to stop you doing this yourself. But recognise your own your own limits of of what you can do, and seek help when you need it. Um, and I would close out just reinforcing again: take action, don't do nothing, don't sit on it, because the fire service are auditing this now. Well, that's <laughs> that's a great way to end. Take action, guys. This stuff isn't going away. Um, you might not be hearing about it, being taught about it on the courses. There's a reason for that. It's because it's not sexy and it doesn't sell. But the buck stops with you. When you walk out of that course or that training and you've swiped your credit card, you've got to make sure that this stuff is going into your brain, however that's coming. Just don't be naive to it. And like Steve said, take action. This stuff is coming and you've got to be prepared. Steve, you got anything else to add? We're going to put all of your information in all the show notes at the end. So if you do want to reach out to Steve, whether it, are you open for, for, for advice on this stuff? You, are you open to take on new clients? I know you've got a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, very much part of um, the, the process that we're going through now is to put an online training platform live for, specifically for this, right. this niche. Um, so that, you know, we can go into much more detail on some of the stuff today. It won't be death by PowerPoint. But um, if, if there's people wanting to upskill themselves, we're going to be launching the, the, the service accommodation fire risk training. There will also be a module for fire risk assessments on that. And you know, my drive of that is to, to try and empower your, your mentees to, to do as much of this themselves as they can, and then to give them the skill and an ability to know when they need to bring someone in. And if they need to bring someone in, then yeah, we have a network of risk assessors that we can look at to, to get people in. Yeah, that, that's why I'm really excited about what it is that you're building. You're building a system which is going to give hosts and, and, and um, service accommodation professional hosts 
the ability and the knowledge and the systems to come and train with you, come and learn with you once, and then take that information and take the systems that you're creating now to make sure that they're competent and self-sufficient yeah. moving on as they grow their portfolio. They can yeah. do it all under the all under that one umbrella. So it's really, really exciting and it just it just takes so much of the stress away from this stuff and allows you to focus on the fun stuff, finding properties, making them look really nice and, and, and making a lot of money in service accommodation. So Steve, I guess we'll leave it there. I'd love to sit here and talk for another three hours about this stuff. It's it Working with you, it, it, it's not boring. It's actually fun as well at the same time. Which is difficult to do with this subject because it's um, you know it can get dull if it's taught by the wrong person. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I know that everyone got so much value and content from that, and we're going to put Steve's information in the show notes. If you want to reach out to Steve, all of his information is going to be there, and I'm sure he would love to hear from you. So Steve, thanks so much. Thanks very much. Cheers. Enjoy. Enjoy.